True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode, in which we discuss cases that are in the media right now. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporter for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Michalina Ferri for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible and purchase the Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Jana Marks, which I narrated, or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. We also have our amazing giveaway running with King Online, where if you purchase for 400 Rand or more and use the TCSA10 code, you'll get entered into the draw to win your share of 2,350 Rand's worth of brand new true crime and crime fiction books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. I haven't done a mini-sode in a while, so when I started to look back at some of the cases that had made their way into the media in the last few weeks, I realized that how we'd have to pick and choose carefully. Probably one of the most highly publicized cases of the last few weeks has been the disappearance and murder of 35-year-old Yolandi Boertis. Yolandi had flown in from George to O.R. Tambo International Airport on the 26th of April when she went missing after communicating with her family that she was about to get into an e-hailing taxi. When Yolandi did not reach her destination, and her family was unable to get hold of her, they raised the alarm. Yolandi was reported missing, and her missing persons poster was shared on social media. On the 4th of May, a father and son who were fishing in the Val River in Villiers found human body parts. Police were able to identify the remains as belonging to Yolandi Boertis, initially by a unique tattoo on her body. The public were naturally horrified. And then, almost simultaneously, news started to leak about a horrific discovery in a Kempton Park guest lodge. A guest had booked into the room on Saturday the 1st of May. Initially, the man was only supposed to stay for one night, and then he booked for the Sunday night as well. CCTV would show that no one else other than the guest had been in his room, but he had received a visitor outside of his room on the Sunday. 
The men had stood outside talking for about 40 minutes. The guest left the room for the last time on Monday the 3rd of May at 6am. When the receptionist knocked on the door at 10am that morning to see if the guest wanted the room serviced, she received no response. She found the door unlocked, and when she entered, a gruesome scene awaited. The bedroom and bathroom sections of the room were spattered with blood. There was blood in spatters and small pools and smudges on the floor at the foot of the bed. And then bloody bare footprints led into the bathroom area where it appeared that the blood had dripped into and around a hand basin and a bloody handprint was on the tiles above the basin. There was a chair in the shower and blood was spattered in there as well. The receptionist alerted the security company, who called an ambulance, concerned that someone inside the room might need assistance. Paramedics were unable to find anyone in the room. A knife was found hidden under the mattress in the room. As soon as this news hit the media, people started to ask whether this mysterious bodiless scene could have something to do with the murder and mutilation of Yolandi Boetis. DNA samples have been taken from the blood at the scene, and the results have yet to be made public. I'm very much in two minds about these two events being linked. While we can only go on what we've been told, information released alleges that there is no CCTV footage showing any person other than the guest entering the room where the bloody scene was found. My first question would be, how would Yulandi, whether alive or dead at the time, have gotten into the room without being seen on camera? My second question would be, if she disappeared on the 26th of April, and this man only moved into this room on the 1st of May, where was Yulandi for those five days? And how did he get her remains out of the room again? without being seen on camera. Yolandi's murder strikes me as very personal. This wasn't a human trafficking abduction gone wrong. I feel like she was targeted. And when someone cuts up your body, and it's not part of some ritual for a serial murderer, which is not the case here, I feel like the person that did this wanted to completely eliminate every trace of Yolandi from the face of the earth. While we might think that it could only be an experienced killer that would be able to dismember a body, that is not always the case. And there have been cases in the past when first-time killers have chosen to dismember as a means of disposing of the body. Initially, we were told that she was in Johannesburg to visit her children. She lived in George with her current husband, and her children lived in Johannesburg with their father. This claim has since been disputed. This case has exploded on social media, with people attempting to not only find links between Yolandi's murder and the Kempton Park scene, but also with people digging into Yolandi's past and bringing up things that she was involved with at one time to fuel further speculation. Really, as far as pure fact goes, we know very little, 
and I'm not even going to get into some of the speculation that's happening on social media because I don't think it's relevant or helpful. Yolandi's family, her children, her husband, her mother and her sister are currently dealing with the most horrific set of circumstances they will likely ever experience in their lives. Not only have they lost their loved one, and not only do they have to acknowledge that her death was horrific and dehumanizing, but now they also have to deal with the onslaught of speculation on social media. Whether or not the scene in Kempton Park is linked to Yolandi's murder, can you imagine her children having to see those pictures shared everywhere and wondering whether that really is their mother's blood? And then the speculation about her past and how mistakes she may have made may have played into this. I do hope that DNA results from the Kempton Park scene come back soon so that at least one part of this puzzle can be put to rest. And then I certainly hope that Yulandi's murderer is found, and very soon, because there is a human being out there that has committed a horrific crime, and they are walking the streets. In another case in Johannesburg, on the 22nd of April, just four days before Yulandi Burtis's disappearance, another woman and mother, Nadia Ravanka, was reported missing. The circumstances around Nadira's disappearance were quite different, though. The 31-year-old mother of four was getting ready for the day in her townhouse complex in Lanasia around 6am when there was a knock on the door. Nadira's husband had just left for his job as a bread delivery man when two men entered their home. Nadira's two older children, aged nine and seven, would later tell their grandmother and police about the struggle that had ensued. The men had struck Nadira, and the two older children had fought ferociously to try and protect their mother from the punches and kicks being rained upon her. The men turned on the children and beat them both, strangling the seven-year-old boy until he was unconscious and beating the nine-year-old girl until she too lost consciousness. When the girl came to, her mother and the two intruders were gone. Her one-year-old sibling was screaming on a bed with a pile of clothes on top of him, and her seven-year-old brother was still unconscious. Her three-year-old brother had slept through the entire ordeal. The girl grabbed her youngest sibling and ran two blocks to her grandmother's house. This little girl is an absolute hero and so has her brother, firstly being so brave to try and defend their mother against two grown men, and then when she was left all alone to run with her youngest sibling two blocks to her grandmother's house. Nadira's family members immediately descended upon the home and found her car missing. Nothing other than Nadira and her car had been taken. A missing persons report was made, and police started to investigate what was clearly a forced abduction. Nadira's family took to social media, advertising a reward for any information leading to the recovery of the woman. Not long after the reward was announced, someone came forward with information.
the woman said that she believed her husband had something to do with Nadira's abduction. The woman's husband, Lakim Shubi, was a security guard at the complex that Nadira and her family lived in, and she said that he'd been behaving very strangely in the last few days. On the 27th of April, police descended upon the Mshubi home in an informal settlement near Lanasia, and Mshubi quickly admitted his involvement and then directed police to a shallow grave in his garden. In this grave, police found the body of Nadira Vanka. Her family were informed of the tragic discovery, and her sister would tell IOL that Nadira had actually made dinner for the security guards at her complex on a regular basis. She had fed her killer. Mshubi gave up the name of his accomplice, Tabo Mambila, but the man would remain on the run until early May when he returned to the area. A crowd of locals recognised the man and began to assault him. Police arrived, intervened and arrested him. He was treated in hospital under armed guard and then appeared in court where he declined to apply for bail. The states believe that Mshubi was the mastermind behind the crime and the motive may initially have been robbery. At this time, it is not publicly known when and how Nadira died. She may have succumbed to internal injuries or head injuries from the initial beating at her home. Both perpetrators are due to appear in court on the 23rd of June. This case is just absolutely horrific. These two men are extremely dangerous, and they had no qualms about almost killing two children. I do hope that if found guilty, they'll receive the harshest sentence possible. I'll keep an eye on this one and keep you updated. In the Eastern Cape, an ongoing trial has revealed that a self-confessed serial killer and rapist appeared in court in clothes belonging to one of his victims. 28-year-old Zolisi Sojada has been dubbed the Kumbu Facebook rapist after he lured several women by using a fake Facebook profile under the name Neo Jerry. The crimes, committed in 2017, include three murders and six rapes. Sojada pleaded guilty to the murders and showed police where he left his victims' bodies, but has pleaded not guilty to the rapes. Sojada was arrested in 2017, and after many delays in his trial, the main charges are only being heard now. His modus operandi was to befriend women on Facebook using fake photographs and send them money to meet him in his hometown of Kumbu. When the woman arrived, he would let them know that he was busy and that he'd be sending someone else to collect them. This was allegedly to explain the fact that he looked nothing like the photographs he'd sent them. Of course, it was Sojada himself collecting the woman. This M.O. is said to have led to the rape of six women and the rape and murder of three. The mother of one of his victims recently recounted in court how she'd received a ransom demand from Sojada when he had taken her daughter. 
Her daughter had phoned her in the middle of the night, crying and begging her mother to send three thousand rand so that the man wouldn't kill her. The terrified mother had taken out a loan and deposited the money in the man's bank account, but when he did not release her daughter and she heard nothing more, she went to the police. She was informed that the body of a woman had been found that very day. The mother was taken to the mortuary to identify the body, and it was indeed her daughter. She noticed that her daughter's shorts and shoes were missing. When police later showed the woman photographs of the arrested suspect, he was wearing her daughter's clothes. He even made his first court appearance wearing them. The man was initially arrested with his 21-year-old girlfriend. At the time, she was charged with possession of stolen property, as many items taken from the victims had been found in their possession. In the newer articles, there is no update about the woman's involvement or current legal status. It is, of course, entirely possible that the woman had no idea where all the property was coming from, as we've seen on many occasions with the partners of serial killers. In his initial crimes, Sojado would rob and rape his victims, sometimes holding them for several days before releasing them. Then he progressed to murder, and he would kill at least three women before he was apprehended. I think this case underpins how easy it is for people to be fooled by social media profiles. Sojado would likely have presented himself as a successful, perhaps well-off man, and he spent time grooming these women and forming a bond with them through messages before he invited them to visit him. For many of these women, it would likely have seemed no difference from meeting someone online and going to visit them for the first time. He knew, though, that if he pitched up at the meeting looking entirely different from the photos he'd used, his victims would not go with him, and they would immediately smell a rat. So he used the my-friend-will-pick-you-up ruse. This isn't the first time I've heard of this trick being used by social media predators. In one case in the UK, an adult male posed as a teenage boy to lure in a young girl. When he set it up to abduct her, he told her that his father would collect her from her house. Sadly, the young girl was lulled into a false sense of security and had no idea that the man she got into the car with was actually a sexual predator, and the good-looking young boy she'd been flirting with online did not exist. Although Sojada has acknowledged guilt for the murders, I really do hope that he's found guilty of the rapes as well. I'll keep an eye on this one and keep you updated. And that is your Spotlight Minisode for the week. Before I go, I'd like to introduce you to a true crime podcast that I'm really enjoying at the moment. Red Rum True Crime is a victim-focused true crime podcast, and host Grace does a phenomenal job of telling these stories. In case you're wondering, Red Rum is murder, spelled backwards. Here's Grace to tell you more about her podcast. Clarissa frantically called 911 and told the operator that she was 36 weeks pregnant 
and had just given birth at home, but the baby wasn't breathing and had turned blue. Paramedics quickly arrived and took Clarissa and baby Zander to the hospital, where he was rushed to intensive care. Hospital staff noticed that Clarissa's arms, hands and face were covered in blood, assumedly from the home delivery. But when they managed to check Clarissa over, they made the chilling discovery that she showed no signs at all of having given birth. Red Rum is a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Search Red Rum True Crime wherever you get your podcasts. I'll leave a link to the Red Rum podcast in the show notes. I do hope that you enjoyed your Spotlight mini-sode for the week. If you did, don't forget to follow us on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Mm -hmm.